Welcome to Hickory Set. My name is All Calling, and I'm enjoyed as always by the one, the only, Dr. Boo made up. How are you today, Luke? I'm very well, thanks, Bill. Um, do you are you subscribed to Jonathan Wilson's um soccer soccer uh, newsletter through the Guardian? Mm, I'm aware of it, but I'm not subscribed to it. So, in the short, this this day, it had the remarkable story of a Tony Edwards. Now, I don't know if that is a name familiar with you. It shouldn't be, but like he did score a hat-trick against Notts County in the 50s or 60s. So... Okay. But this is a guy who was a career goalkeeper. Okay. And he transfers into Luton. And, you know, he ends up being third Third choice goalkeeper. Okay. And a bit short of men in the reserves. Okay. But they just let him be an outfield player for a while. And okay. he goes on a, on a goal scoring streak. And so he actually gets to play for Luton in the first team and does really well as a centre forward. Okay. And that cements his place in Luton, even after his goals dry up and he goes back to being a goalkeeper. Okay. Yeah, but like he had this weird period where this guy was a uh, was a centre forward. Okay. Um, and talking of people changing roles, we have discussed this on offline, but uh, what did you make of the Doctor Who record? I did not like. I did not care for that at all. I appreciate the sentiment, Russell. I really do. And I, uh, you know, your heart is definitely in the right place. But yeah, no, that's just silly. So what we are talking about is, uh, did you actually watch the the mini episodes? Yeah, I yeah, I did. I didn't like it. I mean, they're always like these children in need specials because. So if you do anything more for Children in Need, there'd be something wrong with you. But Children in Need had a Doctor Who mini episode. Um, the the genesis of the genesis of the Daleks, I suppose. And you know what I think is really interesting about it? I didn't realise it was a retcon until I watched the Doctor Who Unleashed that I sent you. I was just like, oh, okay, that's an early version of Davros. That's an early version of the Dalek. The whatever causes Davros to be what we see in the Genesis of the Daleks, that is still, that is still yet to happen. Because, okay. Because as much as uh, Russell T Davies, and I thought I wrote a really good article actually about this as well. As much as you know, people want to talk about getting away with you know this idea of association of dialects with fear of disability or decay or death. They've clearly made up Julian Bleach, the actor, to look diseased. Like, he does not look like a man in the prime of health, does he? No. So, like, that association is still there. Like, you know... <laughs> You may think you've escaped the association with Davros and the Daleks and disability, 
But as much as that, as that exists, it's still there because there's clearly something not well with Davros. He is clearly raging against the dying of his body, um, which is integral to the character. Like, and I think, like, I think there's a very good argument to say the Meg, no, no, the Doctor Strange love character, you know, like the megalomaniac wheelchair-bound scientist who creates creatures in his own in his own image might be offensive and we and we can discuss that in a second but i i don't see what's left of the character of davros if you remove that because that that's like the connection between Davros and his creation. That's what that's what makes it all make sense. Um so like I, I would just even you know if you think Davros is 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 not politically acceptable, just don't use Davros. Um you know yeah. what, you know I did enjoy. Don't know if you noticed this. They had it was it wasn't the actual actor. It was the guy who does the dialect voices doing the impersonation. They had a really good impersonation of Nida, who was like Daphos is his uh, henchman. Yeah, engines of the dialects call him to the bridge, and like that was awesome. Like you know, Briggs gets uh, some criticism because he can be a bit hammy. But uh, I I thought he nailed that impersonation. Like I, yeah. I did think, like, have they actually gotten the guy out of like you know, out of the cupboard to uh to to uh, to to do it? But uh, yeah, so we should so so, so Davros is the uh, he is a mastermind behind the Daleks. Um. I I remember what I don't know what when, when was the first time you watched Genesis for the Daleks, Luke? Oh, I'd be about eight or nine because that was when the BBC was was repeating all the old Doctor Who's. I always forget this because, like, I I I'm, I am more and more realizing what a special summer child I was, or more like a special winter child I was, because like William is approaching the age I was. When I got the news and history bug hard, and I cannot imagine William watching the news by himself, but I was doing it like you know, like at most a year, a year, a year, like a year older than he is now. But I'm pretty sure, like he is going to be seven in December and I've always said my first political memory that I'm sure is a real political memory rather than one you, you, you've kind of remembered by watching archive footage is um, watching News at 10 in 93 during the Maastricht debates and seeing uh, Paddy Ashdown say he would have voted for the Tories if if it wasn't for a vote of no confidence. And my justification has always been like, 
who on earth would remember Paddy Ashdown saying that? Like that's I've never seen that in archive footage. I must have been watching News at Ten live. Luke in nineteen ninety three, I'd have been I would have been seven. You were a special child, well. I really, really were. But um, yeah, so like all of this stuff about like all those. There were Star Trek repeats, there was Doctor Who repeats on TV. I miss it. It all things. passed you by. I all, cause like, literally, what I would do is I would get home and I'd watch the 5 30 ITV news. I'd watch the 6 p.m. Um, B, uh, 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 BB, BBC news. I would watch. I think I think ITV bizarrely had a and I'd watch the local news at half six, and then I would watch the Channel Four news, and then then, then I'd get to break and and go and not go up and do other things until you know until you know nine o'clock nine o'clock news ten o'clock news at ten ten thirty uh, news night. Um. Um, so yeah, so like all, all, all like cause I was reading a really good article actually today, which is about how in the 90s John Pertree became the current Doctor Who again. Okay, like he was the retro doctor that if you were like a kid in the, in the 70s, you remembered other than Tom Baker, but Tom Baker didn't want to be the doctor because he was trying to. He was still trying to make a name for himself as something other than Doctor Who. Whereas <laughs> John Pertry had been Rosam Gummidge. So that like that bit of him was uh that the he got down to his system and was like, Well, I'm gonna be typecast as either the uh, doctor or Rosal <laughs> Gummidge. But um but yeah, like so like I I I remember watching the movie, the TV movie. Okay. Because that was like a big deal. But like, I don't remember Genesis. I don't remember watching Genesis of the Daleks until I got it on DVD. Um, and like, it's great. Like, it's one of the few, my opinion, it's one of the few like old who that really stands up. Like, for whatever reason, they get the direction really right. Like it, like it, it's old, obviously, but like it looks good. Whereas often with old Doctor Who, they're just trying to do a bit too much. You know, they 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 their reach is greater than their grasp. Does that make yeah. sense? Uh, but yeah. So, what what did you make of? Uh, Davros and the uh, the the kind of it has it always has to be said like Davros is himself a retcon like Davros is not integral yeah Um, I mean I mean a I like Davros as a character I mean he did he did like come back way too many times because like Terry Nation had a clause. In the contract that allowed the BBC to use the Daleks, that they had to use it with Davros, um, which meant that he got crowbarred into a lot of storylines. Didn't make 
much sense. But uh, also, let's be let's be honest about this. All storylines, like if the end of Genesis of the Daleks, that was his death. Like, it, yeah, it, that's it, true. He should never have been seen again. And but, Destiny, I mean, like you can do anything in Doctor Who because it's time travel. But Destiny of the Daleks is a particularly bad attempt to explain away what your lion eyes had seen. Now, of course, this is before video. This is before constant repeats. So you could get away with more. But, uh, yeah, it, it is quite striking, just the uh, blatant lack of continuity in Doctor Yeah. How dare they? Dorothy Davis is going on about, you know, we want to break the association between... Um, you know, between disability and evil, and this is a negative stereotype. And it kind of is, but it's never bothered me because, like, <laughs> like I, I, you know, I, I like the idea, you know, Davros is in a wheelchair and he wipes it, he wipes out entire planets. He's a badass. Well, you, can tell why, you can tell why I like to draw why I do, don't you? I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't mind the occasional bit of chaos and genocide. <laughs> Well, it's the old, it's the old uh, joke about the two Jewish guys, isn't it? Yeah. You know, like there's two Jewish guys in the 1930s in Germany, and uh, one's reading a Jewish newspaper in Berlin, and the other's reading like the Storma. Yeah. And the other guy goes, "What on earth is wrong with you? Why on earth are you reading that trash?" It's just like, well, what you're reading, you know, we're we're persecuted, we're discriminated against. We know we're be we're, we're being killed, we're being chased out of jobs, you know. And then in this one, we we rule the world, we control exactly. everything. This is reassuring and fun to read. Exactly, exactly. Um yeah, no. Like, no, exactly. It's an interesting like I don't know how much you can take it take take it further. But, I, I like I gotta be honest, like same thing, same thing with Darth Vader, actually. Well, yeah, well, exactly. Like, Darth Vader, like, every criticism you can say on Davros is you can also make against Darth Vader, in no sense, other yeah. than the fact that obviously he has no mobility issues. Um, But it's an interesting one, because I, I think, I don't know if you, I, I, I think it's one of these ones where it's, it probably breaks the character in Plight Company, to acknowledge the issue. But if it wasn't a, a kind of like mainstream TV character, there's a really interesting story in Dav. No, I, I think I made this joke to you, like in terms of like, there's an interesting story you can tell in terms of this vindicates the social mobility of social model of disability in the sense of. You know, Davros has been radicalized and <laughs> turned into an extremist by the inability of the society he lives in to comprehend his disability. Um, and and I and I think there's like interesting things you can do with that. I'm not sure that's what I do use Doctor Who to do, um, but I well no, I am sure that's what you should not use Doctor Who to do. Um, but um, 
yeah, no, like I, I never thought of it in that way. Um, I, I think there's an interesting thing with Russell T Davies is that I, I get the sense he may have gotten too used to working on less charged dramas because I don't think this would have been I don't think anybody would bat an eyelid if he just hadn't have said oh yeah well yeah Davros we can't do Davros as a wheelchair user now in the same way when he did the well, we can't have David Tennant in Jodie Whittaker's costume because the newspapers would use it for transphobic images. And it's like, I hear the thing, like, I think for both of them, I'm not sure that's actually true. Um, like, look, let's 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 be really honest about this. This is a five minute skit for Children in Need. They probably didn't have the budget to have Davros in his uh, <laughs> full glory, you know. Like they, 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 they probably had Julian Bleach for a day. He wasn't <laughs> on mates' rates. He wasn't gonna have all that shit put on him. Um, likewise, yeah. it doesn't make any sense with the story they want to tell um, to have. David Tennant ha- wear Judy Whittaker's clothing because the whole point is it's uh, it's a weird recurrence of uh, his 10th Doctor persona. So, like, the one thing it does make me worried about is, ooh, you know, maybe, maybe RTD has gotten a bit inside the baseball a bit bit Twitter brains and he's trying to make up these weird uh, explanations for stuff he just wants to do anyway. Yeah. Um do you know what the other thing actually I thought was probably a bigger um issue in terms of the continuity. Go on. A non white call it. Yeah that's true. Like I, I'm not sure what I think about it because obviously it's a metaphor. Also, but like I feel like these metaphors do benefit if you lay it on a bit thick, and you know I feel like if you're doing a proper Khalid Fall story, which by the way, like if they're talking about these spin-offs they they want to do, and there's all these rumours that they may do like an eighth Doctor series, or you know maybe Tenant's fourteenth Doctor survives the free, the free specials in some sort of weird way. Oh God, no, 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 no! I like, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't like all of this because like, I think the Doctor should be the Doctor. Like, I, 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 yeah, I, 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 and I mean, and I mean, also, also David, 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 David. We know you like being Doctor Who. We liked you being Doctor Who. But it's time to move on. You know what? Okay, here's, here's a couple of things about that. So one, I don't know if you watched the whole of that Unleashed show I sent you. But no, what, I didn't. But one of the things that's really fun about that is, is you have, you have like yeah. David Tennant. Hello, Simon, by the way. 
We're just in the middle of a Doctor Who conversation, so we'll be with you in a second. Um, <laughs> and we'll get to the, the we'll get to the uh, special for Rachel. Yes, yeah, yeah, we haven't got to that yet. Um, oh, good, good. I, I'll, this means I'll have some, hopefully, have some kind of veto power. But um, oh no, no veto. Well, hang on, Simon. Are you trying to say you can get Will to stop talking? I've been, trying to, do that, oh. I've been trying to do that for eighteen years. It hasn't happened yet. Oh yeah, that no, that's a fair point. I'm doomed. <laughs> but um, well, it, was anyway. a nice, it was a nice relationship whilst it lasted. <laughs> but no, the, the thing I was going to say was is um, you 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 watch the behind the scenes, and it's like. Oh, we got David on his... Uh, we had one day to shoot with David and it just so happened to be his birthday. And it's like, no, bullshit. No, his wife had a lovely romantic no day of activities for, for David Tennant to do and he cancelled them all so he could just be Doctor Who for one more day. <laughs> you, just, you just know that's what happened. Because my god, that guy loves being Doctor Who. <laughs> he really does. But anyway, anyway, what... the only thing I was going to say about David Tennant was it, and like I feel like this is a really interesting um, comment on like modern media, and like Simon, actually, it's good you here because you you'll know this. You'll be able to correct me on this more than I um, more than Luke. I can't find an article anywhere. It's like a review of his abilities as a stage actor. Oh, um, so there were there have been reviews. Um, there were certainly reviews. No, 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 no not, not, reviews, not reviews of individual shows, but as in, okay, no, look, this is, you know, this is a really famous TV and TV star. He's not really crossed over into movies in a big way. It's a really mm. famous TV star. Both in Britain and in America, yeah. And but he's kept a really heavy stage schedule, yeah. I can't find something that says, okay, you are a David Tennant fan. This is his. This is what he needs to British stage. And I, and I feel like. You would have had that sort of retrospective 20, 30 years ago. Like some magazine would have said, well, the way we get people to read our highbrow theatre coverage is to, do, is to commission 3,000 words on what David Tennant means as a theatre actor. But I, I like... I've Googled it, and I really don't think anyone's done it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. He is not... I don't know what... I, mean, I suppose if you need to... When you're saying, like, highbrow theatre coverage, it would basically be something like The Stage. No, um, no, sorry, or, I should shut up. What I mean is, it's like, you know, like, what we used to think of as a highbrow outlet. It's like, the Guardian or the New Statesman, you know, like, mm. you know, like we're like the BBC, maybe, you know, like, so like this is a guy who now has over two, no, he has almost three decades of theatre work under his belt. 
He has over he has approached in two decades under his belt as one of the most famous actors in the country. And I can't find an article that says, okay, this is what he means for the London stage. Why were you why were you looking? Well, well I was curious because like it's it like the more I think actually it was John Elledge that made me think of this because he was he was making fun of the fact that most of the doctors were pretty crap. Like they're pretty bad actors. Um that, that they're basically old you know, like the BBC tends to go for like light entertainers a bit more than uh no serious actors. And uh I, I'm I'm I was curious, like, is you know is David like is David Tennant an actually great actor and is recognized as an actually great actor? Or is he a bit of fluff to get people to pay their money to keep the lights on? Uh, uh, and like, and I know, like, he is more to like the great actor stage side of that. But I'd like to know how much, like, would he get these parts? Would he have this level of respect? If he'd never been Doctor Who and so didn't have this marketability. And and like I would you would think there would be an article about this. Like I'm not saying loads of articles. I'm saying like what? That's easily okay, Google. Anyway, moving on, what's this what's this uh, what's the special section you've got in mind for Diamond's girlfriend Rachel? Well, well, Which well, made, well, again, that made it sound much dirtier than it actually is, I suppose. I guess. Well, I'll give it, Simon. Do you have any thoughts on Doctor Who mini episode? Um, I haven't got around to watching it yet. I'm sorry, ashamed to say. Did you, so... did, have you heard about the retcon of Davros? No. So I don't know. Basically, no. I have no thoughts. Okay. Only vibes. Only vibes. And and then uh, you and and and. Uh... So, uh, Luke, do you do you think Doctor Who could pull off a big comfy jumper? Yeah, probably. Where where is this going? Well, that where? just proves, Simon. Yeah, no, no, no. Have no. Doctor Who vibe. I am available, and my rates are good. I, by the way, <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't put this, on, I didn't put this on Twitter. But, but when I put the you know big, 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 big comfy jumper. Is a type of thing that would appeal to uh, American middle class anglophones. I mean, who do we know who wears a lot of comfy jumpers? I mean, I wear a lot of comfy jumpers. This other is comfy than, jumpers. Uh, other than yourself, you know, maybe a certain Martin Orchard. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, no, no, okay. I mean, Big comfy jumper is a joyous thing. I'm wearing a. I, I'm actually. I, I'm actually. I realised I'm wearing a big comfy jumper, but I'm wearing a big comfy jumper inside out accidentally. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, well, you know, that's even more Doctor Who behaviour. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to say that. But that just makes you quirky. So. Yeah. <laughs> yes, this is true. Yes. But anyway, 
I, I, I can't prolong it anymore. So, actually, no, we can actually. How are you, Simon? I'm quite nervous right now. Uh, <laughs> that, I'm basically fine. Well, no, <laughs> uh, we haven't quite got to quarter of the hour. But 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 as we but as we do need to get on to talk about uh, Lord Cameron of of Chipping Norton, we will we will begin with the first ever it could it could be fought for the day, uh, <laughs> right? I see. Um, because you know, as 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 as, as Rachel is an avid listener, I uh, thought the it right, was reverend, time... the right reverend, the right reverend William Cooling Archdeacon of Wolverhampton. It's it's, uh, it's time for a bit of theological discussion. And I'll be called, like, I only go first, guys. So, like, you know, get your theological hot takes ready um, <laughs> because it'll be your guys' uh, oh, this, this can only end. Yeah, guys in turn next. But my, but my thought for the day will be actually when I told Luke, because uh, I, I was reminded of this. And, like, this is one of my, um, this is one of my rare, like, penetrating theological insights. Which was um, when we were being taught about Augustine's um, uh, principle of moral evil, and then sorry, the necessity of moral evil, which is you know there has to be the ability for mankind to do evil, because without which how can mankind have freedom of choice, freedom of will, and uh, my as a crusty atheist. Who was somehow the best performance student in my RE class? No, no, no. I got back up. You're not an atheist. You're a lapsed Catholic. There's a difference. No, I'm an atheist. I'm an atheist who's also a lapsed Catholic. Okay. Lapsed, a, a lapsed Catholic is somebody who's no longer a Catholic because you always hear, in terms of the, um, in terms of kind of like what you accept in Christianity, that that Catholic indoctrination is always there. But in terms of my actual beliefs, I am an atheist. It's just you know, in terms of how I judge Christianity, I judge it through a, a Catholic prism. Oh, anyway, anyway, I've anyway I've distracted you. So, what was your point? Uh, so my point was so so basically, uh, so Augustine said, you know, you need to have the existence of moral evil. You know, man needs to be able to do evil to have freedom of choice. And my argument would be that doesn't make any sense. Um, because the Christian God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-kind. So you cannot say that there, that God needs to do anything. No, Sorry, God needs anything to do something, because that would suggest God is not all-powerful. You cannot suggest God doesn't know how to do something, because that suggests he's not all-knowing. And you cannot suggest that God deliberately, for no reason, causes cruelty and harm, because that suggests he's not all-kind. And so therefore... You cannot say God needs the existence of moral evil to give human beings freedom of choice, free will, because a all-powerful, all-kind, or uh, say all-powerful, all-knowing, all-kind God would have the ability, 
the knowledge, the motivation to give humankind complete freedom of choice, complete freedom of will, without giving us the ability to do evil. Now, yes, to us in our mortal brains, that sounds like an impossible contradiction. But that is because we are not all-powerful, all-knowing beings. We don't have the power, we don't have the knowledge that God has. If he does exist, based on how the Bible explains him, he would be able to give us free, free will without us being able to do more, to choose evil. And that is my thought for the day. You are All right. Sure. Do, you want, do, you want, do you want to explain just briefly to the listeners who are, I'm sure, pretty baffled at this point why you felt the need to do that, Well, Well, to be honest, it's because I said it to you yesterday and I thought it was a really intelligent thing to say. So I want to repeat it. But also because uh, Rachel, Rachel, um, we, we did that. We, I thought we had a, a kind of. I should like that. It's not a new thought to me. It's like a thought I had when I was a teenager. Um, there's a really funny thing where I have a friend of mine who's a scientific atheist, and I drive him insane because I'll wind him up by using these same logical games um, against him. Like, yeah, we can't really know that. I know. Like, yeah, we don't really. Um, but. Um, uh, yeah, Rachel had a very good, a very fun uh, 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 comment on the last show that said uh, when we were talking about the honour, die father and mother, that in the New Testament they 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 uh, re- return to that, and uh, Jesus' followers uh, add a line about uh, fathers shouldn't exasperate their children. Which I don't know about you guys. It makes me question God's parenting. <laughs> like if Jesus oh, comes down, oh. if Jesus comes down, and he's like, "Look, guys, look, I'm not adding a commandment. I'm just, I'm, I'm, just, not, I'm, not, just Wood, I'm not Woodrow Wilson. Yeah, I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm just, just saying, dads can be dicks too. You know, about mothers. Mothers are cool." But dads can be a bit can be a bit dickish. Yeah, so basically, so basically, basically, Jesus is cabining that particular amendment, that particular commandment. Yeah, it's an, it's, an, it's a statutory interpretive instrument that's been yeah. added to the Ten Commandments. Simon, <laughs> I mean. The problem of evil is one of the great is one of the great sort of theological and philosophical challenges, right? It's been around since at least the time of Aquinas. I'm not certain that a man who's been given no preparation for this um, <laughs> is going to solve it with my B in AS level uh, philosophy and ethics. Um, I don't. Yeah, I, I. It's. I don't. Yeah, it's. It's. That it is obviously that is the obvious that is the that is a very you know I think that is a relatively orthodox sort of position against you know for of 
you know, sort of against for for evil being a pretty solid proof against sort of the existence of an omnipotent, <laughs> an omnipotent omniscient, and all loving God. Um, and I'm sure that if I could, you know, more than a B in a AS level religion and ethics, which I achieved uh, 18 years ago, I might have a better answer to that question. Well, you know but what? I don't. I'm not sure you do because my teacher's never going to ask me that question. I do. I do like. I'll tell you this, we'll move on to what we're actually going to talk about on this podcast. Because, like, this this has been, like, this has been a very rolling start to the podcast. Um, but um, I I remember, because um, I, I carried over from my uh, secondary school into my sixth form. And so, um, so like, you had your choices. And... Um, the 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 theology uh, the theology was, I think it was down as theology philosophy ethics. That's what it's called on the choices brochure. And uh, so we, so I picked it because I was I was gonna I really enjoyed it. I thought the ethics was sound from. And then like when they called us into the room for like our first A level lesson. It was all those for Christian theology. And me and a mate who was also an atheist were like, oh no. <laughs> they did the double switch. As you say, it wasn't that bad. Like it was, it, it was like divided into, like you had some that was theology, some that was like philosophy ethics. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was just that moment of horror when they announced the subject as Christian theology, and like, oh no, what have we signed up for? It was really, I, I, I had a close friend who was like a, um, a very hardcore Catholic. I'm sure she still is. I haven't met, see, spoken to her in years. But um, whenever our essays would be in, our essays would be deficient in exactly the opposite way. So hers would be incredibly uh, theologically insightful and mine would be incredibly functionalist. And uh, and I remember one of the teachers saying, if you just combine your two essays, we'd have the perfect essay. Okay, so anyway, David Cameron... Talking of things that are both a problem and possibly even potentially evil. <laughs> oh, starting us off with a bang there, Simon. <laughs> and may also disprove the existence of God. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Jeez, somebody got outside of the, got out of the wrong. I j look, you have to remember, I finished reading All Out War this week. I'm not a big fan. Oh is wow, not okay. one of my favourite people. <laughs> so, si so Simon finished All Out War. I finally overtook my son, my seven-year-old son, in Super Mario Wonder. What did you achieve this weekend, Luke? That you probably should have achieved quite a long time earlier than you, you actually have. <laughs> no, busy <laughs> working. No, my, no, no, my man, point is... Just a man who's reading a, a, a six-year-old book. That's my point. My point is I'm reading a book that, that came out seven years ago. It's okay. kind no. of the point. No, no, nothing, guys. I achieved nothing this weekend. Thank you for thank you for pointing that, making me point that out. <laughs> so anyway, Simon. Actually, before we get on to 
David Cameron's re-emergence. What did you make of all that, War? So, if you followed me on Instagram, uh, no, you'd know, no. I, so my... You don't have boobies. Uh, no, I don't. I try, I'm trying to, you know, keep my diet in some I like, check. No, I, I love the fact that your, you, that your English sense of self-deprecation almost kicked in you like, no, no. Like I, I, I understand that I, I am obligated. If someone says a, a something nice to me, I am meant to dismiss it and say no, that's not true. But no, I am not saying on air <laughs> that I have boobies. I am not yeah. doing it. What did you make of all that? And we should say this is not true. Unlike me. I do have boobies. Simon has no boobies. Right. That's right. why Quiet. he can wear comfy soaps. Uh, Jumping. God's sake, shut up, man. Um, Simon, what did you make of all that war? Oh, Luke, okay. Luke, Luke, let Simon speak. For fuck's sake, man. <laughs> Sorry, Simon. Strong, Luke. strong evidence of why we never get we get nothing done. Um, so... <laughs> I, so I think begin begin by reviewing it as a book because that's always. And I think it's a clear, it's a clear, it's a it's a clearly well written account of the time. He clearly has a, you know, he clearly has is very well connected. A colleague of mine who um, used to work for the Labour Party in the sort of New Labour era, and actually I think in opposition as well. We, I, I had it sitting on the desk, and he was like, "Oh, how are you finding it?" And and and, and I was like, "Yeah, you know, getting on with it." And uh, and I said, "I said I'm interested, you know, where where you know what side of the debate was Shipman actually on?" Which I think in itself is a the fact that I'm asking that question is you know to to the book's credit because you can read it and not know which side of the debate he's on. Um, okay, okay. Or at least I could. I, maybe, maybe I was just being you know blind to these things. I think that's interesting. I think that's really interesting. How about you, Luke? Because I think if you're familiar with Tory, you're a skeptic lingo. You know, I'm thinking of the kind of scene in uh, Airplane, like I speak jive. Shipman's clearly a Tory or a skeptic. Like, there's just ways he phrases things that I think make it very obvious. Yeah, but that, I, I kind of lean towards Simon's point. Oh, well, I would split the difference, actually, between the two of you. Because I would agree he's a Brexit, he's um, a Eurosceptic, but I'm not sure it goes far as to say he was a Brexiteer, if that makes sense. No, no, I, I understand what you mean. Like, I don't think he'd be... Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think he's a Tory Eurosceptic. I think that's, I think that's where I'd, 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 how I would describe it. Not necessarily a Brexiteer, but like... He clearly views it through the toy or skeptic paradigm. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. I, no. He's he's clearly a he's clearly of the Conservative Party more than he is of the Labour Party. That is very, that is clear. But the point the point I, I suppose my the point was I didn't feel it was a it was a partial or biased account <laughs> certainly. And my colleague said, "Yeah, I think he probably voted Leave." Um, but he said he then went. But, but let's be honest. His primary loyalty is to gossip, which I think is right. Um, so, like, there are element. There are there are chapters that are brilliant. I mean, the the chapters in the of of the night itself and in the immediate aftermath 
are excellent. They're very well written. They're like, you know, they're like really good newspaper long reads. I found, and if I was less determined, I think I would have given up with all the discussion around whether it was going to be leave.eu or vote leave. And basically most of the stuff in the first half of the book a little tedious. Now, this is probably because I find Eurosceptic politics and actually, to be honest, politics of the European Union a bit tedious. Um, and I found that dragged. Well, I thought it was a pro-European of me, obviously. Well, you know, exactly. Well, it's, it's you, you, you know, in the same way that I've read books about the monarchy, you sometimes end up paying attention to the stuff that, you know, you don't like very much. But I, I, I did find that I found that dragged as a book. I also just a real stylistic point. His desire to end chapters on cliffhangers, I found a little grating. Like it's not a big, it's not a big complaint. It's a, it's a small stylistic point. Um, that I think is just well, you, once. Once it's one of those things. Once you notice it, it begins to annoy. Um, so that's the that's it as a as a piece of writing. It's a it's a it's a good book. I don't think the the things I compare it to just because I don't read I don't probably don't read as many gossipy political accounts as you do as you probably have are the books Andrew Rawnsley wrote during the Labour era, which I enjoyed more. But that may simply be the second problem, which is in any book you read, you have to have some kind of sympathy for somebody involved in it to really emotionally connect. And I will be honest with you. It is a book with one of the least sympathetic cast of characters I have ever read and I hope I will ever read. You've got Jeremy Corbyn, you know, yeah, I think I can't, at some point, I oh, think it was I, Luke who said... Sorry, sorry, I, I, I'd almost push back. Is Jeremy Corbyn even part of the cast? Like, I mean, I think this is because... Yeah, I mean, my back, po- back yeah. in the old days, before, before we, uh, the Sash just really moved over briefly to Podbean, I had to come calling back to Buzzsprouts. Um, the original version of this podcast, our, literally our biggest ever listened to episode was our review of All Out War. Now, this is back in the day when podcast lists download were massively inflated, so God knows what the actual number was. But the number given was 400, so even if you half that, like this, 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 this was like listened by a lot of people. And I remember you saying at the time, Luke, that that chapter sticks out as, oh crap! I suppose we have to cover what on earth was going on in Labour. But I, Tim Shipman, have no sources in Labour, so yeah, I'm gonna yeah, budget. You, you can, you can, yeah. You can, yeah, you can tell he's you can tell he's not as well sourced in Labour in the Labour Party or yeah in the Labour Party than he is in the Conservative Party or even I have to say the Lib Dems for as much as the Lib Dems aren't a major character like he clearly interviewed Ryan Kurtzia at length you know Ryan Kurtzia is a fully fleshed out character in the book and like the only person I get that sense that off on the Labour side is Alan Johnson and Alan Johnson is so angry at Jeremy Corbyn that yeah, yeah that I'm not sure it, it, it's a partial account but anyway go, go on to no, it, I, what, I think my, Jeremy yeah. Corbyn. you've got Jeremy Corbyn you've got Nigel Farage you've <laughs> got 
I mean, I think the enemy of the, the, this, the person who comes out worst of this book, and I, look, I accept that, uh, that, you know, I think Shipman was writing this from a sort of conservative, probably Eurosceptic, might have voted Leave Bent. And I'm reading this from a pro-European, never voted conservative in my life perspective, and I accept both those things. Cameron comes out of that book incredibly badly. Um, he he seems reckless. He seems complacent. He seems, you know, utterly unprepared for what would be necessary to get what. Now, again, this may come from Shipman's Euroscepticism that actually he's like, well, the answer would be to get a better, to get a more, you know, a more of a separation in the renegotiation than than Cameron was willing to get. But the sense you get is that he he was never willing to try. At no point is he ever shown willing to... Th this entire... It's very interesting. Four people, and Ryan Kurtzair is a classic case of this. There were a bunch of people in vote in Stronger Inn who, for whom this was an existential thing. This was really, really important. It really mattered to them. They really cared about this. For Cameron, obviously, it did. It did cost him his political career until well last week. Um, but it, it, you never get the sense that this is anything other than, oh, it's not. It's just. It's just a thing I have to do. I've got to. Well, you know, this is just. Oh, it's another thing, and and it. You never get, and it's very, and I think you know. I thought the conclusion is very interesting. There's someone, I think someone around Ted Heath who claims that the actual, the, the, the enemy of the piece is actually Tony Blair for essentially having no um, controls in immigration after 2004, which, you know, I kind of feel that's probably a Tory trying to defend a Tory he quite likes. But I find Cameron comes out of this very, very badly. And he, and actually it's all of those things you kind of got a sense of, you know, Cameron, the chillaxing prime minister, Cameron, the kind of like, you know, would put puts kind of the short term thing far ahead of his sort of long term. You know, any long term. It, it was it was tactical, not strategic. It was, and the whole thing, the whole decision to call. I know, like, you know, he believes, and I was listening. To, weirdly, I was listening actually to the episodes that um, John Elgin, Stephen Bush, Ding, uh, did are called Prime Ministerial, released at the end of last year, just because I. I found them again and I was listening partly because I was sort of reading about that period. And and if you if you if you go with the opinion that it had there had to be a referendum, I mean I think the referendum, let's be honest, was one of those things they thought was going to be argued away by the Liberal Democrats in coalition. But like well, do you want do you want to explain why, Will? Because no, 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 let Simon build his point up. I don't know. Okay. But, I, you know, I think I think the sense that, you know, the sense, if, if your argument is, well, this has got to, this, this referendum is a necessity. And also, again, and this may, this may be Shipman's sort of latent Euroscepticism coming through, but, like, there is just that sense that, come on, you were never going to, you were never going to support Leave, really. The sense that he, he kind of puts, basically, I think he puts the party interest ahead of the national interest. You know, if you believe that staying in the European Union is in the national interest, Cameron puts party unity and to some extent keeping himself in a job 
or possibly keep putting George Osborne in a job ahead because he never he never tries to roll the pitch. He never tries to make the positive case. He never he he's he you know it, it, and the whole that, that I think the big the big thing and that this is why you know holding the referendum if you're if you basically believe you were going to support remaining in the European Union was deeply reckless because you know the Conservative Party had spent twenty five years. Yeah, yeah, 1992 to 2017, it's, 20, uh, it's nearly 2016, it's nearly 2016, being sort of, being very begrudging about Europe with actively hostile elements in the press. And the idea that they could have turned that mood music around in less than a year was probably for the birds. And that's just the impression one gets. I... And, and, and I think Cameron as well, of course, you've got to remember, he'd won two referendums... Which I think were both easier, what well, clearly both easier prospects, right? Rejecting AV, which no one really wanted, and successfully seeing off Scottish independence, which again was a was a was a much more radical, much more kind of a, a, a prospect that had far less blatant support than Euroscepticism and 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 you know leaving the European Union did by that point. Yeah, so I, yeah, I just agree with so much of that, Simon. But I, I, I completely understand why you think you think it that way. Um, well, wow, this is like being gaslit in a argument about a relationship. I disagree with you, but I understand how you've come to that. Well, well I, I, I think the one thing I will say is that. I think I, I I do think politicians have more power over the agenda than they think they do, and that you know Cameron Cameron may be able to get away without missing the referendum. Um, I think the question would have been, I don't think the question is whether he could have won the two thousand fifteen election without promising the referendum. I think the question is whether he could have gotten to the 2015 election without promising that referendum. Does that make sense? Like, mm. I, Oh, I, absolutely, I, yeah. I, I, I don't think the voters he squeezed uh, with the anti-Scottish stuff really cared either way about the referendum. Like I know, obviously, people always want a referendum on stuff. Mm. Um, but like, I don't, I don't think he'd have lost any votes if he had of got to two thousand fifteen without having a referendum as part of his his policy platform. And if you don't have the referendum, then you know, obviously, the next five years go very differently. Um, I don't think it was something that they meant to bargain away um, with the Lib Dems. I think actually, if you look at what Nick Clegg was saying in the run-up to that election, Nick Clegg was paving a way to allowing that referendum to take place because he knew that that would win over all sorts of heresies 
I think actually what the Tory party planned to do was do the referendum and not do the benefit cuts. That would be the thing they'd blame on the Lib Dems, which ironically may have meant the referendum was won. Yeah. Um, um, in terms of the stuff you say, I do think you have to remember how the last referendum was won on, on European membership, which was the Prime Minister um, stayed neutral, the Foreign Secretary stayed neutral, um, and um, whilst they renegotiated, and then they were like, look, we, you know, look, guys, look, swing voters, we realise you had concerns about e about you know EEC membership, but we've done these changes. We think it's now good, you know, backers to make this work for Britain. And you know, I know. I mean, as though to your skeptics, we both. Well, maybe your skeptics. I mean, I, I've been. I remember when. The, the 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 Eastern Europeans and the Mediterranean countries, now the additional Mediterranean countries, joined joined the EU. I was like, oh, that that's that's the dream of leaving the European Union gone, because Britain will never want to be outside what is now clearly Europe. Um, um we will never be able to untag ourselves from this. Whereas back before, you know, the Iron Curtain had been, no, no, both sides of the Iron Curtain had been unified, you could see a situation where a multilateral, a multivariant, a Europe, no, a Europe on, um, what was a French thing of uh, overlapping circles, you know? Yeah. You know, like, you know, all of these possibilities may be true. You know, after 2004, you leave the European Union, you're leaving Europe. And uh, we'll talk We'll talk about this actually in a second, because M- Michelle Barnier had a very interesting column about this in the FT um, today. Ding. Um, but, um, but, like, both, no, I mean, I'm sure you've heard this before, Simon. But look, you know, me and you, what did we meet up for? Yeah, the Scottish the Scottish parliamentary elections because we thought the re- referendum would be a non-event. We just assumed Brexit would be slaughtered because yeah, we and as two Eurosceptics, we kind of wanted to watch that separately and grieve. To be honest, <laughs> I'm not only to actually watch it go. Holy shit! Why is that that like? But like again, like we've talked about this before, not for a while. You were wobbly. Like people, I was. About... I mean, I did. I did eventually. I did eventually vote leave because you've got that. You've got to have the courage of your convictions. But I was at the time genuinely worried what it would do to the union, what it would do to the United Kingdom in terms I... of triggering another referendum. And again, like, but again, but like, but no, I don't, I don't think that was the only reason. I haven't talked to like you were worried about the economic effects as well. 
And I no, not think... really. No, not really. No, no, I remember talking to you about it. And I, and I think that's because you cared more to, more about what David Cameron had to say. Like, you you, know, you like David Cameron. No, you, you, yeah. you, you I, I like, he, I like, I like, and I just, I always look at this when people say he didn't do enough. Look at how little Wilson did because Wilson made the calculation that if I am too aggressive with campaigning for Remain or in, and if Jim Callahan is too aggressive for campaigning for in, then Either Mike, then Michael, Michael Foot is going to be Michael Foot or Peter Shaw is going to become prime minister, and that ain't going to happen. <laughs> so, like they, they, they were like basically neutral during the actual <laughs> campaign. They did perfunctory statements of support for the government's position, and they left it to everybody else to argue amongst themselves. And I, I, I don't know whether Cameron thought that would be the case and realised he couldn't get away with that because there was no one who could do that other than him and Osborne and everybody fucking hates Osborne. But, like, I, I really think you look back on that campaign and it's just like, what more do you want them to do? Like, Osborne basically said, we're going to jack up everyone's taxes if Brexit happens. Cameron's running around, you know, doing statements on from the front of Downing Street. Couldn't do any more. The only thing you could say is, he could have got a better deal with a negotiation. But the problem with that is, is a, a quote-unquote better deal with the negotiation is a more distant relationship with the EU, which A, they wouldn't give, but B, isn't that what people are complaining about? Um, do you think else to add, Luke, before we let Simon come back on that? Yeah, no, I would just add, because I always push back on this idea that, that Cameron was irresponsible offering the referendum in the first place. And that he should just have ploughed on, basically, and you know, stood up to the Tory, stood up to his own backbenchers in the national interest. I think there actually is a good case that it was in the national interest to hold a referendum, regardless of which. And I'm not saying that because I want to leave. I'm saying there's a good argument for holding the referendum, whichever way it turned out, because. You have to think back to, like, the, you know, Cameron casting the veto over, you know, the whole financial arrangements and then the EU basically going ahead and doing it as an intergovernmental agreement anyway. The point is that, like, democratic legitimacy for EU membership was getting really thin. You know, and, you know, UKIP... 
It's, it's almost like people that make this argument are talking about like false consciousness. It's like the people that voted for UKIP didn't realise what they were doing. You know, UKIP was was becoming the third party of British politics rapidly. So, and... so Lucas, can because this is what I always think. I think Nigel Farage is a deeply overrated politician in terms of his influence, and I think he's a deeply overrated politician. Because people think it's some sort of weird trick that he managed to yeah. connect immigration to EU members, which is like, no, <laughs> what what EU accession of the um, AAs did, the, the decision not to have transitional controls, uh, that changed material circumstances. Like, people were reacting to a change in immigration patterns. The reason why people started associating the EU um, with immigration is not due to Farage's dulcet tones. It's because the EU started to become associated with these immigration patterns. And this was predicted. Like, there's literally foreign office memos from the early 90s that said if Eastern Europe joins the EU or the EC as it was then um, we might have an issue with how many people come over to Britain Can I can I, can I, I just finish the point I was making? Yeah, it was just a, it was a quick intervention Carry on Yeah, well, well yeah uh, and, 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 a, and, a, and, a, and a worthwhile one as well because I, th- I think it speaks to the, to the point I was making so, you know, UKIP is rapidly becoming the third party in British politics. And the thing is, whether, whether the next prime minister was going to be a Labour prime minister, a Tory prime minister, David Cameron, George Osborne, Ed Miliband, the room for manoeuvre they actually had to advance the UK's national interests within the framework of the EU was rapidly narrowing, was rapidly narrowing. Because it's all very well to say we could stay in the EU, but it was becoming such a hot-button domestic issue. Not necessarily the EU itself, but all the issues around it, particularly immigration, that actually is becoming increasingly difficult for the UK to manoeuvre, to actually negotiate in any of these forums, and to not avoid being, you know... The constant, um, you know, the constant awkward squad out there with like Poland and Hungary. So actually, I think from a pro-EU perspective, there is a good argument in 2015 for getting a renewed mandate for being part of the European Union or getting out of the project entirely, rather than being this this reluctant fifth wheel was constantly being dragged in directions it either doesn't want to go or which it doesn't really have democratic consent to go in. So, I mean, I always, I, I do subscribe to the idea that the referendum was coming. It, may, it maybe didn't need to happen in 2015, but it was going to happen and it was going to happen relatively soon. Arguably, and this is a, you know, I'm, I think Will will agree with me here. Arguably, if you want to say the person that messed this up worst, it was John Major for not 
understand for not having a referendum over Maastricht. Because whatever you say, the Maastricht Treaty fundamentally changed what the European project was. And the idea that you had democratic consent based on that 1975 referendum just does not hold water anymore. Well, well this is where I'm a bit more of an extreme, but it's killer news. I, I don't... I don't think Maastricht did change that much. Um, I think it's uh... it didn't ch- it didn't change in terms of the objectives that were being sought, but it moved the ball a hell of a lot further down the. No, I I I I I, I feel the initial decision to join was mistaken. Um, uh, well, yeah, um, no, I, I I agree with you. It's but, just um, I think I I I I think. I, I wouldn't necessarily blame Major because I understand why he was reacting the way he did. But I do think he gave Britain a false choice, which is the opt-outs. And like, we saw that both ways. So we saw with the opt-outs on the social chapter, that the Europeans just wouldn't accept their third, fourth biggest economy being outside their labor regulations. So stuff that would have been in the social chapter just got rebadged as health and safety. And this was a perennial demarcation dispute in the 90s. Um, um, no, never ending. No, no, no. Is this social chat? Is this health and safety? No, the 48 hour maximum working week began as a social chapter measure, then became a health and safety measure, you know, because so, so to include the Brits, that, that type of thing. Um, with the euro, look, no, fundamentally, Integra- integrating economies has consequences. You know, it 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 it, it makes it easier for cross border trade, and that cross making it easier for cross border trade creates a centralization. Um, if you want to push back on that centralization of investment of employment any freedom of movement of people so the people can move to where their skills are needed but b you do need freedom of investment but you can't have freedom of investment if you don't have a single currency because People won't invest in the part of the single market that is optimal to get the best return of investment. They will invest in the part of the single market where their money is the safest. Now, this is why every country has its own currency, has a single currency, because you know, you, you you don't want people to be like, well, yeah, you know, it makes sense to build that factory in Newcastle, but Newcastle's economy is a basket case. Their currency is a bit 
iffy. If I build my factory in Newcastle, they'll just competitively devalue against me. And and like this is why, and like I fundamentally disagree with you, Luke. You know, like you know, European Monetary Union w- was being discussed before we joined. It can never not have been the case. So, like, the mistake was Britain, of all countries, given our size, given our central role in European financial system, the idea that we could remain members of the European Union and not be part of the euro was absurd. You you had to force Europeans back in 1991 to say, okay, look. Because the thing is, equally absurd, we joined the euro, given the diversity of our investments and our trade. Like, it would be the same issue that caused us to have the rebate, which is just that we don't have uh, European patterns of trade. You, you would, you, you would, the Europeans would have to choose between having us in the club or have it, or having the euro, and they are more than welcome to decide that they'd rather have the euro than have us in the club. But well, that, yeah, is, mean, I... that is the choice. And major should have forced that choice. I think that was anyway. I think we kind of got to the same place by different routes, but okay. Um, so Simon, <laughs> Simon's thinking, boy, that escalated quickly. I mean, <laughs> ah, there's, no, there's nothing better than me and Luke is outbidding each other on yeah, that. There's nothing better than intra-Brexiteer flame wars. As I said earlier, the bit of the book I didn't find enjoyable <laughs> is the bit where a bunch of Brexiteers stood around and argued over which bald man got to got to have a comb. Hey, um, how dare you? <laughs> I'm not bald yet. He's there. There's only one bald man here. And actually, he could do with a comb. Yeah, you Actually, seen no, that doesn't my work. Hair lately, Luke. Like I have got a lot I, more. I, I, I just said, and you could do with a coat. Yeah. So, <laughs> Simon, make sense of all that. I mean, I I can't because I don't care as much. <laughs> I think that, and that, to be honest, that, that as well, I think is a really. I think that is the other. Like to be less just beating up on David Cameron. I think that's a really important point. Like. People like Daniel Hannan or Steve Baker or even grudgingly, one has to say, Nigel Farage, they've just been spent... Like, the difference between the average Eurosceptic and the average pro-European in at the start of 2016 is the average Eurosceptic had been thinking about this for 20 years, at least. Yeah, probably yeah. 25 and that means that they they oh, had yeah. these. Oh, sorry, now, can, it, can it, I just give you an example of this? So I think it's a is it ninety five European elections? Yeah, it's ninety five, isn't? 
No, it's yeah, 1994. Because, because it's because Margaret, this is my this is one of those lovely stats. In terms of percentage of seats won, the most successful Labour leader in history is Margaret Beckett because yes. she oversees the nineteen ninety four European I, elections. Anyway, I, I told my nan to vote for UKIP because Britain should be independent. I mean, I'm sorry, anyone who was persuading people to vote for UKIP in nineteen ninety four is a freak. I'm sorry about that, but you just uh, yeah, 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 but like, but like Simon. I, I do have to just emphasize I was nine. Well, you were even more of a freak than for Yeah, you know, like I'm not disagreeing with you that I was a freak. I was a nine year old saying to my nan, You should vote for you, Kip, because but it should be independent. See, normally that's that's the other way round. <laughs> and it, you know, just just in terms of the demographics of it. <laughs> Okay, I'm like, I think it is an important point that someone like Daniel Hannan or Steve Beck, that this was the thing, this was the thing they went into politics to do as well. Like, yeah, you know, Nick Clegg, who is probably the most prominent pro European politician of that moment, really, mate. Yeah. Yeah, like, it's like. He he believed fundamentally that Britain was better off in the European Union. Probably, if you'd asked him, he would have said it wanted to be in the Euro. You know, he was. You know, he was a. You know, as as married as he is to a Spaniard. But here's the thing, uh, Simon. He offered. He he was advocating an in out referendum. referendum, An in out referendum in no five to ten Parliament. And and that was a foolish thing to do. But most things in Nick Clegg's career are fool, were foolish things to do. So you know, um, but like, yeah. Uh, but the reality. But this is kind of the point. It wasn't the drop. It wasn't the. It was a, you know. It was a thing he believed in passionately, and he you know. But to him, it was still more important that he became leader of the Liberal Democrats. It was still more important that he got the Liberal Democrats into govern. You know. Which neither of which are like that. I'm not. That's not a critique. That's just like to him, the stuff that mattered wasn't, you know, for 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 da- if you if you put a gun to Daniel Hammond's head and, you know, I've obviously have never thought about doing that, um, and said you can either be leader of the Conservative Party or you get to leave the European Union. You can't have both. He probably would have chosen leaving the European Union. And there's nobody. Oh, no, no, on- there's no. There's no. no probably about it. He absolutely would have. So you know, I, 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 I would disagree. I think you're trying to leave the Conservative Party. Yeah, no. But, but like, my point is that like, there's probably nobody on that Remain side who, in the same situation, if you said to you know Alan Johnson, would you rather you know you can leave the European, you can stay in the European Union, or you can become Labour leader? Which one do you choose? Wouldn't have chosen leading his party, you know. No, I, I, no I, again, I disagree with Alan Johnson. I think you'd have chosen being part of the European Union because he doesn't want to leave the Labour Party. He like okay, actually, that's a really bad example because he does famously. He I, I, again, I, I think I do think, and I know this is not what you. I don't know. You finish your point, though, and I'll come back. So I'm, I'm, I'll well, my, my, my point at the heart of it is that there were just there was just more passion, you know. There was just more passion, and there was just more desire, and that passion and desire, by the way, I mean, not not, not that people in Stronger Inn didn't work incredibly hard and didn't, you know, that 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 is clear. But 
for the voter, the average Eurosceptic voter, you know, quite clearly, you know, would have fought off wild dogs to vote to leave the EU. The average pro-European voter believed it was important and went and, you know, voted. It was a higher turnout, you know, on both sides. But it was much more, you know, it's not, it's it wasn't. And it's interesting now with, you know, what, seven years after, leave, you know, voting to leave and um, nearly four years after actually leaving, um, that, you know, the question now, I think, would be, you know, if you said to, if there was a second, there's not going to be a second referendum. If there was a referendum on going back into the European Union, you know, would would that in any way have reversed? And I'm not sure it would have done. I still think that the people who voted to leave in 2016 would probably be more passionate about making sure we stayed out of the EU than those of us who stayed voted to remain would be in trying to get us back into the EU. Which again, again, these are hypotheticals. I'm not saying it's going to happen. Yeah. Well, I think I think the thing is. Again, I, I, it's a weird thing to defend the side that you uh, enjoyed beating. Um, but, um, which I suppose talks about how unlikable the uh, Leave proponents are. Do you know, I, I, I don't, I, I can't remember if I said this to you, Simon. I think Luke knows this. I actually had a interview with the kind of first attempts to set up a son of vote Leave. Because I was in between jobs just after the European referendum, and they and uh, they were looking to set up something. Um, um, I think I think it's what becomes Open Britain. Um, and uh, I did actually have an interview, and I was meant to send stuff over, and I got a real job, and I was like, "Thanks, fuck, I don't have to delve into that uh, swamp it." Um. But um, I don't know. Like I, I, I really think you have to remember just how bad the polls looked for Leave quite late into the uh, referendum cycle, and what that means is a. Maybe don't take the polls that show Leave would clearly lose now as the cast iron truth. Maybe the polls are, sh- I mean, maybe they're right, but maybe they're showing the same problem that they showed back then. Um, but equally. I I really think the politicians tried their best, including like look, what more do you want someone like Jamie Corbyn to do? This is a man who voted against the formation of the European Union. You got him out, say like it, whilst he was running for Labour leader the year before, he said he his mind was not open. His mind was open, voting against staying in the European Union. Like, I, I don't think you could reasonably expect Jeremy Corbyn to do more. Um, the reason why Alan Johnson got to be the leader of the Labour campaign is because the Labour, the Labour Remainers didn't want to leave it, Jeremy Corbyn. Um, 
I mean, you see some of his weird ideas. It's probably best not to leave it to him. But, but equally, like, Cameron taught Cameron Osborne torched their own political careers. Like they really did. Like I, I mm. don't see what more people did. And like this is not what Wilson did. Um, you know, they Osborne did not go as far as Sturgeon did in the Scottish referendum campaign, or Swinney did his his direct uh comparison. Like they 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 you know, like and like you know, I think Osborne exerted undue pressure, undue influence on the campaign by getting the IMF and the Bank of England to circumvent further, um, and doing their um their 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 warnings and their promises of punishment measures. You know, like yeah, at some point, you know, at the end of the day, the situation is. You go to British people, do you want to join Schengen? Do you want to join the Euro? Even most pro Europeans will coil in horror. They'll go, No, that's a lie by the US skeptics. Your skeptics, the Brexiteers say that you have to have those if you're part of the EU. And I won't. Why? If if Europe's so great, why do you hate Euro? Why do you hate Schengen? Like, surely these are part of the deal. Maybe you don't like Europe that much. Um, and, you know, like, if I think there's an argument for Cameron, it would have been he should have taken greater sense of of the media and the party environment when he realised how much opposition there was, particularly coupled with Jeremy Corbyn, you know, the most US skeptic candidate in that election, becoming leader of the Labour Party. I think a very interesting counterfactual where he just goes for soft Brexit there and then. And the referendum okay. and the referendum is do you accept soft, soft Brexit? Because here's the thing like I said Daniel Hannon well they've accepted soft Brexit. It, like if I mean this is always a question with soft Brexit. Can you actually get a soft Brexit? Because mm. the Northern Ireland border means it probably involves staying in the customs union. So how soft can it be? And um, so that's Daniel Hannon don't really care about the immigration stuff. But like I think if Cameron made a mistake, it would probably well there, there's two mistakes. One is not exploring what form of soft Brexit he could get. Because we kind of had, like, you, know, you had a whole thing of how, like, how veto got ignored. And the rest of Europe just goes on without us. 
Yeah. So, like, we kind of have started to kind of migrate away. But the other thing is... Um... Um... Oh, God, what was I going to say? Um... Oh, I was going to say. Oh, I can't believe me now. Luke, this, is, this, is, this is largely why I read novels. Because you see, you don't. I don't get hour-long discussions about the yeah, about yeah, a, yeah, a referendum see, that's happened now. Yeah, you see, Simon, this is exactly why I don't read novels. Because what novel could possibly be this interesting? Yeah. I mean, I've got so many answers to that question. I mean... <laughs> Let oh, I remember. You, I remember. I remember about James Joyce. I remember the one thing Cameron did didn't do that Wilson did because he very clearly modelled his approach on Wilson. He didn't square Johnson. Yeah. Um... No. No. So, so Wilson squared Callahan, who was the the most sure skeptic, moderate Labourites. People always go crazy when people say this, but it's true. Johnson is to the left of the Tory party. Certainly was back then. I think he's kind of been radicalised by um, people being mean to him because he's a crybaby. But, like, Johnson was clearly on the left of the Tory party as of 2016. And... I, Cameron should have made him Prime Secretary after the election. Should have passed a law that uh, 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 that that mitigated um, mitigated uh, uh, the need for by election. Um, no, just 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 um, extended. I mean, how would you do it? Pass a law to allow a a a acting mayor to be appointed. No, you, no, it's 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 easier than that. You give him a seat in the House of Lords for a few months. No, no, then, you're, you're an MP. The House of Lords is no, a... no, 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 no. That, that's not the issue. Johnson was already an MP. The issue is, you would have to have somebody in place. The way it works for the mayor is you can appoint an acting mayor within six months of the the scheduled election. So you'd need something to bridge the six months. This is why Johnson couldn't take a role six uh, um, immediately after the election. So you'd have had to have passed uh, like a law or uh, like an amendment. To say, both like a, a a acting mayor could be appointed for the last year of Boris Johnson's term in office. Um, does that make sense, Simon? Yeah. Should we, we actually talk about David Cameron being appointed for second? I don't know. Simon has any any final thoughts on Brexit? I mean, I I think it was a bad idea. Um, I, I read the book. I Fuck still you, think you're wrong. How dare you? Well, damn you, oh, oh, damn you. Oh, also, also, Simon, you were saying that, that apart from Michael Gove, you really didn't like anybody in the book. 
Again, I kind of went off Michael Gove, to be honest. Um, yeah, you know what? I really... knew you would say that because he doesn't come across well. He becomes the less appeal. He becomes less appealing. So, no, it's just yeah. I didn't. I don't think there's anyone except like some of the sort of some of the staffers actually on both sides. This isn't just a you know pro remain piece. Come across fine. But mostly I'll just reminded that as someone who, you know, didn't particularly enjoy that referendum, didn't enjoy the results, grim, just a pretty unpleasant experience. Like just didn't really enjoy most of the Yeah. And yeah, I thought most of the politicians, and I think it says a lot about the paucity of quality of polit- I just think we didn't have yeah, just very few of the politicians come across well and at, at that moment. And I think I mean I, I I do like the um I mean the botched the botched vote leave coup is just very 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 funny. Well, I mean, just... I, I like this is one thing I, I meant to say earlier. It's like I would defend the designation stuff because that was really important. Like it may have been important. It doesn't mean I found it enjoyable to read. No, no, no. I I, I do I do I like I I do think at some point there should be like an abridged version that is the stuff that's relevant 10,000 yards out. Yeah, uh, I do worry about his third book because it's so delayed. God knows what he intends to cover given how delayed it is. Yeah, he, he, yeah. Said, he, said, and he said actually that Cameron's appointment as Foreign Secretary means he's going to have to go and delay it again. Which yeah, I, like that, that that feels like an excuse to me. Quite possibly. And you're like, your second book, which, by the way, I read the second book first. And um, advice for anyone who's, you know, if you've had um, some bad news in your life, don't read anything happy, right? Read a book where people you don't like are having a horrible time. Because... When I was dumped by my previous girlfriend, which obviously in the long term was good. It was a good thing. Yes. But, you know, in the short term, it was unpleasant. The book I read... Rachel, if if you're wondering, Simon's previous girlfriend, they got no fourth of the days on the podcast. No, exactly. (laughs) This is the thing. Um, (laughs) Anyway, um, I'm very happy, darling. Um... The book I read, like in the immediate aftermath of being having been dumped, was Fallout, which is Tim Shipman's account of the 2017 election. And I have to say, nothing would would have cheered me up as much as reading a bunch of people I deeply dislike having a genuinely horrible <laughs> time. So, and, and and like whatever works for you. If you're an Arsenal fan, read well account of basically any Tottenham season. If you're a Tottenham fan, read an account of last season. You know, yeah. Whatever your whatever your kind of whoever your enemy is, you know, not in a kind of like you know, but whoever whoever you basically wish ill will toward, find if you're having a hard time. Maybe you know, maybe it's you've been been dumped. Maybe it's that you know you've had some bad medical news or whatever, whatever. Whatever bad, if you if you're ever in a place you have bad news, think of the person you actively wish ill will toward, and read an account of them having a horrid time because it really will cheer you up. I mean, I I can't I I really you make you're making me question fundamental things about myself here, Simon, because I've always thought of myself as quite a cynic. 
um, and you know, quite sort of, you know, <laughs> quite sort of hard boiled when it comes to politics. But actually, I would say the strength of both All Out War and Fallout, to a large extent, is that as I mean, I I don't know any of these people as people, but as characters, I liked most of the people in the really, book. That's because they're on your side. Pardon? That's because you're on your side. Like I. No, 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 I, no. I, I would say that extends to people in the Remain Count as well. Yeah, but uh, you know they lost. No, no, no. No, like you, 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 you're viewing something for the prism art. Well, don't, don't tell me what my opinion. Well, no, 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 sorry, 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 sorry. Um, like apart from Farage and Aaron Banks. And the American consultant they get in who comes across as like, they all come across as like genuinely loathsome. Like, I, you know, I, I sort of have some sympathy with, with, you know, people who believe what they believe passionately, who work hard to bring it about. Um, and they come across as very human people, even to the point that I wouldn't say this now. But, like, Dominic Cummings in All Out War, I kind of found myself liking Dominic Cummings. Oh, he half wrote the book. I was impressed. I was impressed. I mean, yeah, if he half wrote the book, this is... I was impressed by Dominic Cummings in the way you're imp- meant to be impressed by Malcolm Tucker in the early series of The Thick of It. No. No, I'm not having that. Like, I'm sure, I'm sure that's what Dominic Cummings intended. That is not my reaction to reading those books. Oh, yeah. Well, because you think he didn't do anything particularly special. It's like more money for the LHS and fewer immigrants. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, like, I, I just. Matthew Elliott ran. But what he campaign. did, what I think, what I mean, what the account that I, where I read it, and I think Matthew Elliott is probably the most underrated man in British politics in terms yeah. of most people don't know who he is, and he is clearly I, very impressive. I, 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 I was about to say, like, the reason why Dominic Cummings hates Stephen Bush, which is like one of these really weird but fun um, physical arguments, is because Stephen Bush always makes sure to give uh, Matthew Elliott his flowers. <laughs> yeah. It, I like, he, he is a small and pe- he's a strange. Like, Dominic Cummings is clearly. I, I wonder if he's gone back to that bunker and watching the war room, watching the war room over and over again. <laughs> I, I this is this is why I think people should read more widely than one thing or listen watching one thing. It's it can't be healthy for you. Yeah. Um. So are we actually David Cameron's appointment? Well, well maybe Luke. Oh. Maybe. Well, we have just been talking about the birds and the bees whilst uh, um, we, we weren't recording. But now we're going to talk about someone who's back in the business, which is David Cameron. That was awful. That, <laughs> was, <laughs> that, was, that was one of your worst, to be fair. Yeah, I'm going to well, say, well, I'm well, say yeah, you know, that was... like, we were talking about why I am the one who of us as a dad and what are dads here for if not to make a business joke. That's not to make dad's jo- dad jokes. 
So, yeah, the reason we were talking about David Cameron is he's back, everybody. Guess who's back? Cameron's back. Back <laughs> again. Davey's back. Back again. Back and, he looked again. So, and he looked so pleased to be out of the house. Well, he's clearly been living in that shed on wheels for a few years, hasn't he? So Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I will say that, I, you know, I really enjoyed... Both on, and this is, you know, both on the BBC and Sky. So, you know, we believe in all, you know, we believe in, you know, yeah. it's not a, the, the, the moment when, um, the <laughs> moment when they, then the, that door opens, they're like, ah, it was like, ah, someone is coming down the road. Uh, clearly, like, it's going to be someone quite, we've all kind of vaguely heard of, but we're going to have to introduce you. He's been the transport for secretary for the last 18 months and very boring man in a suit. And it's like, oh no, it's a person. It's it, we've brought someone back from series two. That was I so- love the the, BB, the BBC guy. I, I'm 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 not having a funny turn here, but I just saw David Cameron get out of that car. Yeah, no, and and, and I it's that's Henry Zeffman who's been a very yeah. good journalist at, at the New Statesman at the Times now at the BBC, and yeah, he he I think he captured both actually him and and Kay Burley. They both kind of captured that moment. Because sometimes journalists' job is to explain what's going on, and sometimes it is to reflect what the audience is feeling. And it was very much the latter in that case, because I think, I mean, I remember, you know, because I think we all saw that the Suella Brokeman situation was untenable. Yeah. Um, And so when it was was like... That was was like suicide by reshuffle. Yeah, and and that was you know, and it, so when she was sacked, and there is no other way of putting it, it was like, oh yeah, yeah, that's what we expected. Oh, I wonder who's going to be the Home Secretary. Oh, it's going to be James Cleverly. Oh, that's interesting. There's going to have to be a new Foreign Secretary. You know, all of these. Well, no, no, like, I think good... for me, I think for most people, it wasn't that not in that order because I don't know about you guys, but like I woke up to O'Brien's fires, and there was like. Cameron's in Downing Street. And like there was that moment where it's like, is he just uh, there for a meeting? Yeah, yeah. Is he advising? That's true, actually. Is it is like is he just advising someone? What else would he be? This yeah, is like, very like, uh, cleverly being cleverly and Cameron as like the new appointments were announced together. So like it was this kind of like mm. what the fuck is going on? And, um, I mean, like, do we want to talk about, before we get on to, like, the people who are still alive, do we want to talk about uh, Braverman and... On- honestly not. She was shit her, she was shit at her job. She wrote, she, she's gone now. She might run in the next leadership election. She won't win. Fine, move on. Luke? Oh, I think she, I, I think she might win, Simon. No, no I, I agree with Simon. Uh, well, she's certainly running, put it that way. Yeah. Um, I don't but... think she'll get to the point where she's a viable candidate. I think it's a bit Anne Whittacombe. Um, I think, um, you know, she, 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 she was given her oats too much as Home Secretary, went to her head. Um, I think the capstone on her, like, kind of, the end of her as a frontline politician was a resignations, her resignation statement, her firing statement, her being fired statement. Yeah. Where like 
And like it, it like I don't I I've not seen anyone say this, and it's such an obvious point. You were given the golden opportunity to actually home in on a point of weakness for Sunak, which, as you say, we've had all these disagreements, and I've kept working for you. I've kept staying loyal because you kept saying you're going to be a change candidate. But then you bring back David Cameron. What the fuck are you doing? Yeah, it's and almost it, as if she's and, not very smart. <laughs> and instead, she does this whole weird thing of, you've just kept lying to me and breaking your promises. Look at all these promises you've broken, you've broken to me over the past year. And it's like, yeah, but you didn't resign, Zuela. And it just talks about the fact that she's a weirdly postmodern, post react. I think she has beyond postmodern. She's post reality. She doesn't feel like her public statements should have any connection to what she actually does. Like her statements, much like the statement she did when she was fired by Liz, like when she resigned by she resigned from Liz Truss's government, has no connection to what is actually happening. It's like Braverman had an argument to resign in disgust at what uh, Sunak was doing, but she didn't do that. She was fired. And yet she wrote the statement as if she resigned in disgust. She, yeah, she's, a she's very not very odd good person. Like, very odd person. Yeah, she's very odd. She's not very good. You know, like this shouldn't be surprising. And, and I mean, just... also, I mean, also, like, not to get into this because we'll be here all night. But uh, you know, her article was in the Telegraph about how to fix the Rwanda deal, which is basically to pass a bill saying we can do whatever we like without. Any cognizable judicial review. I mean, that really is some. That really is some breathtaking shit. Well, okay, yeah, we, we will briefly talk about the render issue because it it is an important political issue. Because 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 like because like you can make the argument we should pull out of the ECHR. I don't. I don't you you can't. To... You can't. It's it's a complete fantasy. Yeah, I don't happen to agree with it, but you can make the argument. No, you you can't. You can't make the argument. It, it won't make any difference. <laughs> well, all right, then let me rephrase that. Tory MPs are making that argument. Yes. <laughs> right. Um, you're in a very combative mood today, Will. No, 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 no. I'm not in not a combative mood. Like, it's just a fact. All right, all right, okay. Talk, I don't talk... get... Oh, you've made your point now. I'll make my point. Yeah, I don't want to get... But, like... And we've talked about using notwithstanding bills to to deal with some infrastructure issues. But the idea that you would do like a whole series of non-withstanding clauses to make the entire bill essentially non-justiciable and to give government complete carte blanche uh, and to give government the power to make a whole series of really subjective judgments without any idea of judicial review. It's just... Yeah, that, that's kind of how democracies die. The reason why 
this whole stuff is a complete nonsense is because the Rwanda deal is cosplaying as the Australian um, boats deal. So um, you know, the Australians have a, have an agreement where anybody they find on their, you know, trying to get onto their coast, they pull across from their coast, no matter how close they are to their clo- to their coast, to certain processes, processing centers on you know micro nations nearby. And what the Australians are doing with that is they are gaming the current immigration laws, which are not European laws, they are international laws as defined by the United Nations Convention um, uh, on Refugees and its Associated Protocol. And the Associated Protocol is important because the United States never signed up to the convention, but bizarrely, they did sign up to the protocol. Um, and so, like, you know, like, what, what the Tories have been trying to do for the past two years and what they've been trying to do for longer than that with with their kind of uh, mistaken invocation of a points-based immigration system, is they've been trying to make people think about how brutal the Australians are to these boat people. You know, it's 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 like Donald Trump going when he got the spoke to the Australian Prime Minister. <laughs> Like you guys are crazy. You guys are brutal. You know you, you know you you send the boats back. You know, like you know, it, it's that stereotype people have of the Australians. Um, but that only works if you stop them getting to your own shoreline. The minute somebody gets sets foot on your shoreline you are legally responsible for them. you're legally responsible for them by british law you're legally responsible for them by european law you're legally responsible for them by international law i.e the un you can't escape these responsibilities by amending british law you can't Escape those responsibilities by disapplying or withdrawing from European law because the European law, the British law, is just codifying how we apply basic principles of the UN. Now I yeah, think, but I, mean, I... I think these UN principles are wrong. I think these UN principles need to be revisited. 
and reformulated for the modern day. But the issue is the UN principles. It's not UK law. It's not European law. There is no escaping this other than negotiating with all the other Western, North American, Pacific West countries to work out what is the immigration system that we are willing to do. The Rwanda Agreement cannot circumvent that because fundamentally if you the the issue with the system that the UN Convention of Refugees sets up is the minute somebody sets foot on your territory they gain these all these enhanced enhanced rights well if they've always set foot on your territory, doesn't matter shit whether you've sent them over to Rwanda. They've still set foot on your territory. You're still legally responsible for them. Rwanda has never, ever solved the actual problem. It's a completely fake, cruel, misbegotten, evil solution to a problem that doesn't exist. It's it's a complete dead end. I don't know why we keep talking about it. It doesn't solve anything. Yeah, okay there, Will. <laughs> yeah, well, I just want to make sure people understood what I was trying to say. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, I, well, let, I well, let's, let's let him come in because he's the he, he's less immigration restrictionist than me and you. Yeah, no, I mean, I I I I agree with with most of that. You know, it is this is a, yeah, this is a global problem. This is a global problem. There is you know countries talking and 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 yeah, the UK's non solution to this issue to to this thing is 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 wrong. I, I am not particularly restrictionist on immigration but and there are there are you know and as we spoke about in the last episode that that's going to, you know we are going to have to have a intelligent think about think about what the future of immigration looks like as we're going to get more climate refugees and we've still got you know we've got two major wars on the edge of europe still you know go, going through their merry hell um you know these are you know we are not even have to talk about it but Rwanda is not an answer. It was never an answer. It was it was a belief in out of sight and out of mind. Um, this this government ha- has been defined by its performative cruelty toward people who seek to come to this country. You know, from trying to ship them to Rwanda, a country which you know they cannot be trusted cannot be trusted you know cannot be trusted with them with these people to painting over disney cartoons in, in, in immigration centers this government has not got an actual answer it is unwilling to actually deal with backlogs in in the home office and so they are just make, trying to make the lives of some of the most vulnerable people in the world as unpleasant as possible to in in 
in lieu of actually doing anything that might solve any of these issues? No. I mean, yeah, I, I agree with you both, but I just want to come back to this point that Suella Braverman thinks you could pass a bill that basically disapplies not only all existing law, but all existing legal principles. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big, you know, I'm a big believer in parliamentary sovereignty. Our, our constitution is the king and parliament can do anything. Doesn't mean that it should. <laughs> does, does, doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean that I think like the judiciary should be completely circumvented. And it doesn't mean that I think we should we should basically give the executive arm of government carte blanche to Christina, this is the thing. You're asking you're asking the home office, you're giving the home office like plenipotentiary power to make what are really subjective and difficult decisions. And they're really bad at making the decisions they have now. But I also seem like there's uh, there is a like again like unfortunately like very sensible ideas are being discredited by the kind of irresponsible headlines, irresponsible framing these things are being suggested. But fundamentally, the current system doesn't work. The current system doesn't work because it relied on the difficulty of travel to be the limiting principle for open borders. Um, and it relied on um, the fact that hostile nations wouldn't, or difficult nations in difficulty, wouldn't want people to leave their nation and would make it difficult for them to leave their nation. Um, because heavy industry, modern warfare required lots of manpower. And um, as travellers became easier, as we've realised heavy industry is less of an important thing, as we've realised modern warfare requires less people, um, the kind of restrictions um, dictatorships place on people leaving have produced, which means there is more of a burden of people trying to get into um, uh, you know richer countries, um, more and, and like and you can also add to that the fact that there is this issue of it used to be um, that countries are diverse that had political dissidents wouldn't mind if we hosted their dissidents. Because better their dissidents be over here than near, near the country they're trying to inspire a revolution. Because you know, if they're on the border, they'd be causing all sorts of trouble. Um, and so, like, new, you, but, but, but now, because of social media, because of uh, modern fundraising uh, networks, you're now getting, getting things like the Indians, you know, assassinating. Um, or the Turks, as uh, so, so the Indians assassinating Sikh separatists in Canada, or the Turks assassinating religious extremists in uh, America, 
because actually um, these people aren't that far away, even they're halfway across the world. So what what we are going to have to end up doing, in my opinion, first of all, I think at some point we are going to have to have a patchwork of safe houses across the third world. Um, maybe one by the UN, maybe one by NATO, I don't know who, where refugees can come to be assessed. If they're accepted, they then get allocated to the relevant country. Two, you're going to have to remove this assumption, this privileged status for people who just line up on the doorstep of the country. Um, like it, 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 it will have to go at some point. It's, it, you know, it's not doing the job it was meant to do. Um, and I think part of part of the way you dismantle that is you're going to end up with deals with the countries on a grand scale that the uh, you know the the guy with the hook ha- ended up having where you you sign deals with the countries you return them to where like they the country that 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 is recipient of them promises they won't torture them they won't execute them and in return we end up paying for them so rather than paying Miranda to take countries failed asylum seekers back we pay the countries that they were trying to get asylum from to take them back on terms that are acceptable to us. I want to have to create a whole infrastructure in terms of, you know, checks by the British Embassy, you know, all of this sort of stuff. And you'll have to you'll have to pay those countries money because, you know, there has to be some skin in the game why they won't just turn around and abuse these uh these people. And like the money goes to like the country, not the uh, person, because you don't incentivize people uh, coming over. And and you're know, like you know people always get sick of people saying this, but it's true. You have to lower, you have to reduce global inequality. <laughs> You know, like, the only way to stop mass immigration, the only way to stop people moving around the world is if they're like, okay, actually, the economy here is okay. Um, but, but the alternative is, you know, the... The the, the 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 Eastern European border, the 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 the, the straits of the the the, the straits of the Dardanelles, the Mediterranean Sea, that will all be militarized if this isn't uh, if we don't grasp the nettle. 
um, uh, you know, like to a certain extent, us and France talking about this, we're we're the aftershocks. We're the Sontarians arguing about the about the time war. The, the front line is 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 much closer to 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 North Africa, um, um and Western Central Asia, and uh, this could get pretty brutal if, if a solution isn't found. But the solution is not. Oh, we pretend we disapplied the European Convention of Human Rights, so we won't do anything. Any any thoughts on that? I I know I know for a while, but uh, no. I, I I feel I've thought about this issue more than you guys. So. Yeah, no, probably. I mean, I think yeah, it is it is clearly a serious issue, and yeah, that uh, no, yeah, there's this is a distraction, and it, it there's nobody having any serious thoughts. I don't think. I, I thought I'd have serious thoughts. No, no, no. I, 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 any any thoughts are my serious thoughts. I'm meant to say. I mean, I think, yeah, I think certainly the, the lowering of global inequality is going to be an answer. And, I, you know, it, it's like most people don't want, most people have, you know, need to be incentivized to make these sort of trips. So you want to reduce the push factors as far as you can, which is to try and make climate change less of an issue and, yeah, reduce global inequality. That that would be a, you know, that is going to be, that's going to be the answer. But, you know. As a professor of IR, Luke, um, how about the uh, deals with uh, the countries not to abuse people we will, we turn back? Yeah, they're unenforceable. But are they plausible? No. That's how he got somebody back, the uh, hook line. Yeah. Abu Qatada, and yeah, it was because that was a course of the lab in the international press for a decade. But yeah, I I don't think it would work. I don't I don't think it would work on a large scale. Anyway, can can we wrap this podcast up because it's quite late now, and I want to go to bed. Okay, so very quickly, David Cameron, Foreign Secretary, to give me a success. Um, depends depends what you... on yeah. It, it depends, is it? I mean, because this is my, this is my, because I don't know why Sunak has done this. Because if he's done this for altruistic, for better, for better term, reasons of he genuinely believes that you know to improve Britain's standing in the world, having a foreign secretary who already knows people in the Biden administration will already know people in the senior uh, figures in China, in India, in Israel. <laughs> You know, if that's why it ha- happens, it probably won't make much of a difference because the UK is a mid-ranking power. Um, if he's doing it for the more cynical, for the for the more sensible political reason of David Cameron is the only member of the cabinet other than Sunak himself who passes what I'm going to call the pointless test. So the BBC quiz show Pointless asks people a, a general like. How many people can, how many items from this list can you name in 100 seconds? And then it gets a score based on how many people. So if 50 people can name a, a, a you know, a nation, one that know that Austria is a member of the EU, if you ask the question, list members of the EU, Austria would get 50. And the idea is you get, you know, and the, it always, it's always chastening whenever there's a political question because stuff I think we would probably all, think of as pretty 
easy to remember. Um, it just nobody knows. And and in this cabinet of sort of no hopers and genuinely bad people, like they, they people don't know Mark Harper is the transport secretary. People don't know who the you know defra secretary is. People don't know who the um, defence secretary is. People do know who David Cameron is. You know, he was prime minister of this country for more than six years. He's a significant national figure. And also, I think the thing as well is that he is somebody who, the sort of people who live in Isha or Richmond or, you know, the posh bit, the ni- the sort of the nice bits around Sheffield, you know, the sort of people who might be considered, might, might have historically voted Conservative and are currently looking to vote Liberal Democrat or possibly even Labour or are not are certainly not worried by Labour government. There are people, I think, who go, I feel reassured by David Cameron, but that's only going to work for him as a political tactic. If you use David Cameron in what he's actually very good at in general terms, which is a sort of explainer, you know, he is, he is, he is a figure who is quite a, you know, he is able to explain stuff. He's able to, and I can't see that. And generally, you don't put the foreign secretary on the TV. You don't put the foreign secretary on the Today program because the the way he was sold was he's basically going to be Mister Shuttle Diplomacy. You know, he's already gone to Ukraine. He's expected he'll be go. You know, he'll probably go to Israel at some point. He'll presumably go to the states. He'll go to, you know. And if you're doing all of those things, is he going to be able to, are you going to be able to take advantage of his sort of popularity among a core bit of swing voter, which have a chance of turning the next election from a defeat they can recover from, you know, whether it's a defeat they can recover from or a total annihilation. And I'm just not convinced that it's going, they're going to be able to do, I, I just, I, I don't think they're going to do it. And I don't think it's going to work. Because I think Cameron will just not get the space. What do you think, Luke? Yeah, I mean, I think the, I think the foreign policy bit of it. Um, I think actually there is the, I think uh, I think there is an element of Sunak wanting to concentrate on domestic affairs for the next twelve to fourteen months. So having a foreign secretary that you can basically leave to mind the store and actually delegate quite a bit of authority to, I think makes sense from Sunak's point of view. I think um, if you read the Sunday Times long read this week, I think it was also about Sunak having somebody around the cabinet table that actually has significant electioneering experience. Um, because really, it's only it's only Cameron and Gove that have that. Sunak doesn't have that really. Um, so I think that makes sense. I think this is all too little, too late. I think the this Conservative government's um, favourability ratings are in the toilet. I think in I think in hindsight, it was probably doomed the minute Liz Truss uh, became Prime Minister. Because it drove the tor- that drove the Tories' um, competence on economics completely over a cliff. I think Sunak comes across as smug and entitled. Fairly because, because he is, um, <laughs> and I mean, I this is the thing. I actually don't. I actually don't think he's done a particularly bad job. 
I think the the absolute mistake he made at the very beginning of his premiership was not throwing Liz Truss under a bus, mm. then lighting her on fire, and then dancing on the charred remains. Luke doesn't mean that metaphorically. Uh, I only half mean that metaphorically. The, the thing is, you had to you had to put you had to nuke that forty five days. You had to say she was an outlier. She was a nutcase. She was a nutbar. This is not who the Conservative Party is. We took leave of our senses, but the sensible people are back in charge. And Sunak can't make his mind up whether he wants to do that or whether he wants to sort of lose trust. Are they going on about cutting taxes now? I mean, that's just economically illiterate. We can talk about that in a later podcast, but it's like, what are, what are you doing? Like, what is the plan here beyond surviving the next five minutes? It's surviving the next five minutes, Luke. It's surviving the next five minutes. It's just, and I, I, like, the sooner the, the, the sooner general election comes, the better. From Sunak's point of view, from the Conservative Party's point of view, from the country's point of view. Because, actually, I don't... Because, not only because I don't agree with Keir Starmer on a whole variety of issues, I don't want Labour with a... a, a Thwacking majority because I think really thwacking majorities tend to breed poor governments. I think the ideal majority is somewhere between sixty and eighty. Ironically, this government has that, but I don't think it's good. For, I don't think it's good for democracy if the major opposition party is like two hundred seats behind the government. Um, I just I despair basically. Um, well, yeah, I got there. So, like, I, I, um, I, I, I see. I, I hear a lot of what you say, and uh, yeah, I think I, I, I kind of agree with it. I mean, I think, um, I, huh, how, how can I put this? So, like, I, 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 I feel like. Sunet did not realise what he was doing. He didn't realise what message he was sending out to people. And, and I think that's why all of a sudden we get these income tax cut messages because they're like, oh shit. We've got a sense, say something to people. And but like, this is one of the that because like I don't think there's any any practical impact of Cameron becoming foreign secretary, which is actually why I would defend him becoming foreign secretary because I feel like I would kind of have this as a lord most times, given the way the foreign secretary has evolved in modern day uh, communications, modern day politics. Um, they should they, they they should be somebody who um uh, is a bit divorced from modern day politics. Um, they shouldn't be somebody who's expected to be in the House of Commons every now and again. They should be somebody with some credibility, like 
I don't know, but, I mean, Simon, I'm sure you think more of David Lammy than Luke, and I think you probably think more of David Lammy than I do. Is, is David Lammy being foreign secretary the most you do with David Lammy and his insights into British society when foreign secretary is basically being a gopher for the prime minister? Like, you know, some, you know, some new Labour veteran, would they not be better off being the next foreign secretary after Cameron? I mean, it's, I think the question of whether David Lammy ends up being foreign secretary, like the reason you make someone, particularly shadow foreign secretary, which is a profoundly meaningless job, but it sounds really good, is that you, is basically you, you make them their, your kind of, you can make them a lead spokesperson. You know, it sounds like you're, you know, if you put the shadow foreign secretary on Laura Koonsberg, and I realise I've talked from, I feel I've just pretended. Hey, I, I know what you're going to say. I, I find, fundamentally disagree because the phone, the shadow foreign secretary is always meant to sound like a statesman and they always struggle to sound as statesman-like as the, the current foreign secretary. So they have to be even more risk averse mm. at uh, saying anything party political. So you you basically take whoever is in that position off the board in terms of day to day politics. Like I I as a I I used to play a political role playing game, and and one of the things you always have the issue of if you're in your position is your best players. Wanted to be sort of chancellor, wanted to be Sharon Home Secretary. Uh, and they, they were good roles, good opposition roles. And then they'd want to be Shadow Foreign Secretary. And you'd have to explain to them, like, like no, 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 guys, there's nothing for you to do in this role. We, we need you to be Shadow Education, Shadow Health. Yeah. Like, I, as the lead of the opposition, I am just going to do Shadow Foreign Secretary. Because, like, like, you think about, like, people are talking about, oh, you know, like, how can a commons hold a Foreign Secretary to account? And it's like, what the set piece Foreign Affairs um, commons events? You actually look at them, they're all done by the Prime Minister. NATO, G7, G20, you know, UN, you're like all these kind of key set piece speeches, they're all done by the Prime Minister. Yeah, I mean, who knows, you know, who knows who will end up as Foreign Secretary in the next Labour government? I mean, probably will, may, end, may very well be David Lammy. Um, we will see. Um, but like, yeah, I mean, I, I'm 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 not a fan of the House of Lords. Full stop. Right. So, you know, which is my, but that's. But, but if, that's, if, if you got rid of the House of Lords, would you insist no ministers being MPs? Yeah, probably. I believe in this democracy. Uh, wait, 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 hang on, I'm sorry. So we'll, we'll do this briefly, but no, no, wait a minute, like. Hang on, wait. What? 
What happens if there's someone really good for a position? You would persuade them to join your party and then they would, you know, That's stand for this thing called election. A, it's not how any of a parliamentary <laughs> system does it. Well, just because I mean, well, how, for instance, I mean, well, how? Do, so you're saying I, I don't know? Look, I don't know enough about government. Well, they just let non non parliamentarians, or either a they let because people always get this wrong. Actually, most countries have a degree of appointments to upper house, but actually, what normally happens is there's just an ability to have non parliamentarians be part of the government. Yeah, like, I, I don't get that, Simon. Like, what's the democratic accountability of a French foreign minister or Just because, well, a I, US Secretary It probably isn't enough. I, I would like a more democratic system than either France or the United States. I, 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 but, but, but it's not more democratic because you're saying that the best person... Because you got to remember, like, every person you put into the cabinet is one less person that can hold a government to account yeah. in what would it, be a unicameral system? Well it, well, it doesn't have to be unicameral. You could have another elected chamber. I mean, other countries do manage it. Um, I know I know. in Britain we think the idea that, you know, possibly having two democratic chambers in well, our parliament actually, is mad. Two elected chambers is not actually that normal. Like, our system is unusually bad. Most upper houses are not directly elected and they usually are barred from contributing ministers. I mean, I think we have a, a particularly poor system, which is that, you know, if you want no, no, someone... No, 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 I agree that. I would abolish the House of Lords. I'd abolish it. But I don't understand the reason why we can't have non-MPs as ministers. Well, I, I suppose my concern, I'm always concerned about democratic accountability. And if you, and if you, because we don't directly elect the prime minister, and I know that's what you would like to do, but that isn't what we, you know, that isn't Not the anymore. system we have. I, I wouldn't do it anymore. But like, if we don't, you know, if, if you know, the only people who will just, who have ever voted for Rishi Sunak are the people of Richmond. And, like, yeah, but they voted for the people who made him PM. No, I, I mean, yeah, but I, I just, I worry. I, I, you know what? I don't. I haven't thought this through deeply. I just don't like the House right. of Lords. Next, next podcast. We've had thought for the day. This time, next time it's parliamentary reform. And on that note, because I can no look. We began with Simon's intervention being reviewing all out, all out war. We've ended with him pleading about not having thought through his actual plan to replace the House of Lords. It's it's have, almost as if it's not my job. Have you thought about a a a die chamber system? Is that, one way, is that one way? Is that one way? Is that one where you have to roll a a, a, a twenty to, to be no, able no, to pass no. laws? Our, 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 no, our equations at university, uh, um, um, uh, Edward Keane, did come up with a ten chamber house, yeah, exactly. house of parliament, a quincameral legislature. 
The problem. This is the. But the problem is that this is the. This is why people who are obsessed with politics shouldn't be allowed to get involved with politics. It's the same reason that Tony Benn was wrong about lots of things. The, no, these no, no, people... no, that's wrong. Because Tony Benn wasn't obsessed with this sort of stuff until he got involved in politics. Like he was like a uh, upper middle class himbo who had done a few wreckies in uh, in Zimbabwe, and. And then he just hung around in the bad crowd and got radicalised. And, and and thought everyone else wanted to spend six nights a week at political meetings, whereas most people just want to go home and eat cheese. No, I, I again, I, I think I think that by nights, no, no one wanted to do that. And that's what they thought would get them the victory. Uh... They, just, they just forgot that that, that works to take control of the Labour Party. It doesn't work to take control of the country. All right, guys. Good night. Yes, well, well, yes. Good night, Luke. Good night, Simon. We will talk about our ideal constitutional system um, on the next... Not the next podcast you'll see in this feed, because me, me and Steve should be doing a uh, a podcast about uh, uh, Marvels. But uh, the next time me, Luke, and Simon talk, and yeah, oh, by the way, there were other reshuffles. James Cleverly is Home Secretary. Um, yeah, but no one cares. Let, let's be absolutely honest. Yeah, good, good luck. Uh, becoming next Tory leader. Yeah, he's he's he, he was. I think I think he was in pole position two weeks ago, and I'm not sure he is now. Yeah, and no, like definite, definite sell if you're doing a political fix. Uh, Which is just. Sorry, this is. Uh, you can either have this on the podcast or not, but like after Stephen Bush's sort of rant on Twitter against the new statesman, which he's entirely right, Political Fix is just the best political podcast in Britain uh, these well, days. Here's the thing right. Other than this one, obviously. Obviously. But, you know, it, it kind of proves his rant in a, in a two handed way, in a sense of. Yes, the fact that that political fix has became my go-to British political podcast proves how the New Statesman podcast has lost its way. But also, the fact that I don't listen to it when Stephen Bush isn't on it shows that it's lost its way by not keeping Stephen Bush. Yep. Like, like I, I do every time he's on, I go and it's like, Oh, I, I like these guys when they're talking to Stephen Bush. Um, and I'm like, oh, no, I find this really objectionable and annoying. I'm not going to listen to this. Oh, I, see, I don't find it objectionable and annoying. I just, I like, I like, we know, we know that we love Stephen Bush. Everybody knows this. And he's just very, very good. But I find, anyway. I mean, you probably find it less annoying because you're, you're closer to their meet their 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 kind of ideological center of gravity. But I I find and again like you know Stephen Bush is nowhere near what I believe, but like I feel like he pushes back on some of the smug centrism, which is exactly what he's pushing back on the new statesman. And on that note, Luke, any final thoughts? No, I want to go to bed. How's Notts County doing? I've got work. No, don't get me started. I've got work in the morning. Bye, everybody. Bye.